and to the book of Revelation. You can see at the top of your study sheet, we have now hit the century mark, y'all, on this study. We've now hit 100. I think this goes down as the longest study that we've done together in the last 11 years that I've been your pastor. Uh, we've obviously been taking it slow and for obvious reasons as we look into the book of Revelation and the things that are said there. Now, where we are right now is we're in chapter 14, and we're dealing with a group of people that are referred to as the 144,000. This is an infamous group. There's lots of cults that are based off of the teaching that are found, that's found in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 with regard to this group. It's in a very elite group, and I think that's one of the reasons that people want to find their way into that group, but you can't find your way into that group, and especially if you're like most of us in this room, and that is that you're a Gentile, because this is a group of people that is made up of 144,000 Jews that are from the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, and that's where you come up with the 144,000. But when you look at this group, and we see them in chapter 7, and we see what's happening in their ministry on the earth, and then in chapter 14, it's when they are on the, the holy hill of the Lord, and they're, they're with the Lord in heaven. And, and what he does in chapter 14 is he begins to show us the characteristics of this incredible group. And because they are such an incredible group, and because, quite honestly, we are such a lousy group, we've been trying to just look at the things that are true of them and learn some things that we can begin to apply in these last days before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And I hate to sound so negative for you folks who are guests, and I mean, I'm already talking about what a lousy group of people we are, but that's not my estimation. Because you know what? I'd probably be like the rest of the world if I didn't have a book to tell me differently. I'd probably think things are going along pretty good, and I might call revival what the world is calling revival and what mainstream Christianity is calling revival but we got a book and what he says in Revelation chapter 3 and I like to ask you to go there because I want to introduce you to a term and when I say introduce I'm not talking about you folks that have been here for the last several years uh, in this this church because you know the term but just so that our guests can understand what we're talking about as we're dealing with the last days please understand this the Bible says that God is a God of history. And what he talks about in Isaiah 42 and really all through the book of Isaiah and other places in the Bible, what God says is, I declare the beginning or the end from the beginning. In, in other words, I write history before it happens. And what you find out is in the Bible, he has given us the record of what has taken place in eternity past and in creation in the 4,000 years uh, before Christ came to this earth. It gives you the history of the birth and the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings you into the book of Acts and it gives you a, a history of what was going on in the early days of, of the church. And then all of a sudden, the book of Acts closes off. And then we pick up in the book of Revelation and we find out about the events of the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, the new heaven, the new earth eternity and all of those things, and there's this major gaposis in there. I mean, he, he left out what took place from where the book of Acts left off to the rapture. Unless 
You go to the book of Revelation and you put it into the context and what you find is that the God of history knew what he was talking about when he told you, I am going to tell you the end from the beginning. And what you find out is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what he did is he gave us a panoramic view of the history of the church that picked up where the book of Acts left off and brings you all the way up to the rapture. And that outline of church history is found in the seven letters written to the seven churches. And we've taken the time in this church to go through and watch how God very carefully and very pinpointedly outlined for us the history of the church all through the centuries leading up to 1901 when we began to, and entered into the Laodicean church period. And that period is outlined for us in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And I want you to look at what he has to say about what's going on in Christianity at this day and time. This is his read on it. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I'll spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And you can see that it's a group of people that thinks they're at one place when Jesus says they're really at another. It's a group of people that thinks they've got it all together, and Jesus says you, haven't, you don't even, you're clueless. You think you see, he says, and you, you need to have your eyes anointed with eye salve so you can see, because he says you're, you're blind. And look at this catastrophe in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know what? He's outside of the church in the last days. He's not even inside. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, and they, most of them won't because it's too loud on the inside. Too, too many programs going. Too much activity going. Too much celebration of his presence going on and they can't hear the knock and so they don't open the door but he says if anybody's out there and you want me to join the party then all you got to do is just open and I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me and he closes out in verse 22 he that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches and guys if you want a description of the way that Jesus views the Christianity of our day, he just gave it to you. And when you contrast who we are with this 144,000, man, we've got a lot to learn. That's why we've called this Laodicean Lessons from the Lamb's 144,000. And we're in Revelation 14 trying to glean some things that we can apply as Laodiceans who think we got it all together. We're trying to get some stuff that we can apply. I don't have time to work you through everything that we, we've covered to this point. But one of the things that you see about this group, you, you can see it in the middle of verse 4 of Revelation 14. 
It says they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And I'm telling you, those of us in Laodicea desperately need to learn that lesson. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was very, very, very clear about what it meant to follow him. And so based off of this group of people, we've begun to just look biblically at what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, you can turn there if you want to. I'm going to quote it for you. But in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said this. Okay, here it is. If any man wants to come after me, let him, and what he does is he gives two very basic prerequisites. He says, if anybody wants to come after me, let him first of all do what? Deny himself, and secondly, let him, say it with me, take up his cross. Jesus says, if you want to be a follower, here's the deal. You come denying yourself, and you come taking up your cross. And as believers in the last days, folks, we can't ever look at that teaching and that invitation that our Lord gave to us and remove it from what the Lord revealed to us about this time that you and I live in. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says that these last days that we're living in are perilous. And you know why they're perilous? Because men are lovers of their own selves. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Our problem is, we love ourselves too much to do what he said. He says, take up your cross. And what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 is that what is characteristic of believers at this period of time is that we are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And the two are mutually exclu exclusive. You cannot deny yourself while you're loving yourself. You can't take up your cross while you love pleasure more than you love God. And so this has caused all of us to have to stop and just begin to analyze where we are as Laodicean believers, as Laodicean followers of Jesus Christ. And we've been going to the, in the last, well, last week we began talking about this thing, of what it means to take up your cross. And you can see on your outline there, we began talking about the reconciliation of the cross. If you're really going to understand what, the, what Jesus was talking about when he talked about taking up your cross, first of all, you've got to understand the reconciliation of the cross. And, and what that means, just as a reminder to all of us and to bring you folks that weren't here into the flow of what, what we're learning here, the reconciliation of the cross is this. When God created us, just like we sang about, just like Frank was talking about, 
When God created that first man and that first woman, they were in harmony together. They fellowshiped together. They were in a love relationship with one, one another. But there came a day when that first man and that first woman chose sin, and because God is supremely holy, he cannot coexist with sin. And the Bible told them that the day they ate it of that fruit, they would surely, what? Die. And the moment that fruit touched their lips, they died a spiritual death. That's the, the, the spirit is the part of us that fellowships with God. And because we chose sin, we died and we were separated from God. And the thing that was separating us from God is this thing that is called, it's sin. And what it has done, Isaiah 59 in verse 2 says this, that our iniquities or our sin have separated us from God so that we're here now. And God is where he's always been. And there is this great chasm between us. And it is this thing that is called sin. And so God began to let us know in the Bible what it would take to deal with this thing that is called sin. And he said that it's going to take two things. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, he said it's going to take the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness, no deliverance. And he said in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that it's going to take the death of an unblemished sacrifice. That's what it takes to deal with sin. And, and would you turn back to the book of Colossians? This is where we were last week as we, we looked at this thing of the reconciliation of the cross. So get it, there's two things that it takes to deal with sin. That thing that is separating us from God. And look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, it takes the shedding of blood. And Jesus, having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to, here it is, reconcile all things unto himself and what reconcile or reconciliation means is to be brought back into a former state of harmony we were in harmony with God when he created us but sin caused this separation and Jesus shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to God and let's go on to reconcile all things unto himself by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through what through death to the death of an unblemished sacrifice the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and that's the reconciliation of the cross and listen we are not reconciled to God by anything else it is the cross and it is his cross alone it's not his cross plus your baptism it, it's not his cross plus your good work it's not the cross plus holding out faithful to the end no listen if you will ever be reconciled to God it is gonna be through the cross and the cross alone, and if it's the cross plus anything else, what you do is you nullify the power of the cross to reconcile you. 
In fact, let me take you to the book of Exodus chapter 20, and let me show you this. Now, God knew where he was going with this whole thing, and so what he did is all through the Old Testament, he just, just laid out all kind of pictures for you all along the way to let you know what was going to be shaken down. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, God's just given Moses the Ten Commandments, and, and then after that, what he begins to do is he begins to give Moses the specifications concerning the altar. Listen, the altar upon which the sacrifice for sin would be offered. And I want you to see what God told Moses about that altar. Look in Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. He says, And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. You know what hewn stone is, y'all? It's stone that's been worked on. It's stone that's been cut. It's stone that's been sculptured. And he says... Now, when it comes to this altar, don't cut it. Don't touch it. Look, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. And you know why God said that, folks? It's because that altar was a picture of the cross where the sacrifice for sin would be offered. And listen, what he's teaching us way back here in the book of Exodus, if you add anything to the cross of Christ, he's saying you pollute it. You pollute his sacrifice. You make his sacrifice null and void. You see, tools, folks, tools are what you use to, to work. And God says, listen, you, you start... Dinking around on the cross with your works. He says, what you do is you, you mess it up. And so God says, listen, don't touch it with any of your nasty tools. Don't touch it with any of your nasty works because they're an abomination. You can't add to what my son did when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And if you try, you pollute the sacrifice and it's powerless to save you. So we're reconciled to God by the cross. And the cross alone, and I can't emphasize that point enough, alone. And then we moved into the explanation of the cross. This is letter B, the explanation of the cross. And what we saw is that when you genuinely come to Christ's cross to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're reconciled to Him, According to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 and numerous other places in this scripture, what happens at that moment? Okay, now you got it? We're coming to Christ just like he said. If any man will come after me, okay? So, so we come and we come to his cross to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be reconciled. And what the Bible teaches is that at that moment, at that moment in time, we're translated out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of His dear Son. And at that moment, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And also, at that moment, as we come to that cross, the cross of Christ that reconciled you, that cross that He carried, the cross upon which He shed His blood, and was the instrument of his execution, at that moment in time when you are reconciled, that cross becomes what? 
it becomes your cross. You take up His cross, and His cross becomes your cross. And now listen. And bearing the instrument of your death, you now follow Christ. And for those of you that may not have been here last week, let me just clarify that the death that you die on that cross may not mean physical death. Though I can't even say that without even reminding you, don't ever lose sight of the fact that it did mean that for over 50 million of our brothers and sisters down through the centuries. And in fact, there were another six of our brothers and sisters that joined that number this week in the Baptist Church in Fort Worth. It, it has meant that through the centuries. There are some people that do lay down their life in their, their physical death, but for all of us that come to that cross, that cross that reconciled us, that same cross becomes the instrument of our death to self, to self-will, to me, to my to mine. Taking up your cross means death to self. Taking up your cross means willingness to endure persecution. Taking up your cross means willingness to endure rejection and reproach and shame and suffering, even martyrdom, for His sake. You see, folks, the way that Jesus explained this thing, now it's not explained this way in Laodicea, but the way that Jesus explained it is that there is, there's an exchange. I exchange my sin for His righteousness. And most Laodiceans love that. Oh, we love to sing about that. We love to talk about that. We love to thank God for that. But it's also the exchange of my life for his and there's no longer a, a parallel existence of both together my life and his we take his life as ours is sacrificed at that cross I, I love the way that K.P. Yohanan used to put it if self is on the throne then Christ is on the cross. If Christ is on the throne, then self is on the cross. But there's an exchange. And I'll give it to you again, unless you... What was that again here? If self is on the throne... This is on your study sheet. I don't know why... So many are looking at me right now. You already got this? Oh, yeah, we're way ahead of him right now. If self is on the throne, then Christ is on the cross. If Christ is on the throne, then self is on the cross. And folks, listen, the perilous reality in Laodicea is that people in these last days are being invited to follow Christ, listen, and yet are never faced with the realities that Jesus said that following Him means taking up a cross. Laodiceans, 
People in these last, they don't hear that message. And, and, and let, me, let me show you what, I, what I'm talking about. I, I've, got a, I've got a Newsweek magazine up here, and the, the, the cover story is called, And the Children Shall Lead Them. And, and it's all about the baby boomers coming back to church. And, and what the article says, and, and I quote, What counts if a church is to attract its share of the baby boomer market is not the name on the door, but the programs inside. They, the, the, the young generation, the baby boomers, they inspect congregations as if they were restaurants and leave if they find nothing to their taste. And, and then they begin to quote a guy by the name of Wade Clark Roof, who is a, a sociologist at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And, and they quote him several times in the article. And what he says is uh, talking about Christianity in our time. Participation follows not out of duty or obligation usually, but if it fits their needs. They don't convert, they choose. And then the article talks about this guy by the name of, of Reverend Jess Moody. He's the pastor of what was formerly uh, the First Baptist Church of Van Nuys, California, and since then he's moved the church and changed the name uh, to become what he says to become more palatable to the group that he's supposedly trying to reach. And this is what he said. People don't like denominational tags anymore. All they want to know is what's in it for me. And so check this out. Knowing that, evidently he's, he's wanting to give them what they want, because the article goes on to quote one of the members of his church, a guy by the name of John Merrick, 42, of whom the article says, and, and, and he, he's, it, it says that he and his wife find the church perfect for themselves and their five children. Merrick says, there's a spirit of putting people over doctrine and denominations. The attitude is that they're for life, love, and liberty. It's more for things than against things. The article says, Moody has banished hellfire, this is the pastor, has banished hellfire and damnation. And he's dropped many of the standard terms of Christian theology. And, and quoting Moody, it says, if we use the words redemption or conversion, Moody says, they think we're talking about bonds. He still likes to wave a Bible when he preaches, but that too has been altered for his audience. The version he uses and sells after the service is quick scan which highlights the essential passages in boldface and requires no more than 30 half-hour sittings to read from Genesis to Revelation. Quote, It's a happy church, says Paula Crasium, 31, the daughter of a minister who joined Moody's congregation 12 years ago. She says, It totally accepts people as they are without any sort of don'ts and do's. When our relatives visit, they all wish they had a church like ours. Not everyone can afford to build a new church to the latest specifications, but any congregation that wants to grow is learning to meet its customers' needs. Not the need for salvation, the felt needs. For earlier generations, the service was a stitch in time to hear the familiar word of God and to get right with the Lord. The article says, those days are long gone. In their efforts to accommodate, many clergy have simply airbrushed sin out of their language. Like politicians, they can only recognize mistakes which congregants are urged to put behind them. Listen to this. 
unlike earlier religious revivals, the aim this time is support, not salvation. Help, rather than holiness, a circle of spiritual equals rather than an authoritative church or God. Listen to this. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. A, a group affirmation of self is at the top of the agenda, which is why some of the least demanding churches are now in greatest demand. And I'm telling you, you read stuff like that, and as a, a Bible-believing, fundamental, evangelical man, we read that and, and it's just such a blatant, in-your-face undermining of the truth of the gospel. It, it ought to jerk your chain, does it? But listen, the thing that's really scary, the thing that, I mean, is really scary right now, is that there is a, a much more subtle undermining of the truth of the gospel that's going on in Laodicea than what we just read about right there. And the reason that it is, is the damage that's being done is being done by people like me and you. People who claim to be Bible believers. People who claim to be and believe the fundamentals of the faith. And you see, what I'm talking about here is, what is what, what's happened in the Laodicean presentation of the gospel. Now listen real carefully. What's going on? And I want you to, I want you to just look at your evangelistic outreach and, and see if these things be, be so or not. But rather than face people with the real issues of salvation that bring people to the cross of Christ, we spend our time trying to entice them with the benefits of salvation. And here come people, and they're coming to quote, unquote, follow Christ, but they've never been brought to the cross. We ask people in Laodicea, I'm talking about Bible-believing fundamental people like us. We ask people, listen, are, are, you, are you looking for peace? A guy's really going through the struggles at work, and so we start talking to him about the peace that's found in Christ. And, and, and if that's a door, wonderful, but you've got to be careful. Are, are you looking for peace, we'll ask? And are, are you looking for real happiness? And would you like to, to experience abundant living and listen, all we're really doing is taking off the red suit and the white beard and replacing the ho-ho-ho and replacing the name Santa with the name Jesus. It's, would you like to come to Santa Jesus and get the goodies that he has to offer? And, and, and we tell him, well, listen, if you're, if you're looking for real peace and real joy and contentment, man, I've got... I've got good news for you because that's the reason that Jesus died on the cross to provide those things for you. And I want to just remind you folks that that ain't why he died on the cross. That's not it. Jesus died because every single last one of us rebelled against God and in his face we chose our own stinking way just like Satan did. We chose the way of sin. And listen, because of sin, 
Every single last one of us is destined to a Christless, godless, eternal place of punishment where we will suffer in torment forever and ever and ever in the flames of hell. And the fact is, there ain't a stinking thing in the world that we can do to change it. There's nothing, no way, no how. And Jesus is not dying on that cross so that we can have a, a nice little happy life. He's dying on that cross because of that sin. And God in His graciousness provided Him. God in His goodness. God in His tenderheartedness and compassion and mercy and great love wherewith He loved us. Sent Christ and Christ, the second person of the Godhead, became a, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And though He had never known sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, check this out, that He became sin for us. At that moment in time on the cross, all of the sin of every single person who had ever lived was heaped upon Him. And He died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day. And in so doing, what He did is He paid the penalty for our sin so that we wouldn't have to suffer torment forever in hell. That's why He died. That's why He was buried. That's why He rose again. He paid the penalty so that we could be reconciled to God. That's why He died. It was because of sin. And now listen. What brings us to the cross, what brings us to the cross rather than to the Santa Claus Jesus is the fact that somehow through the events of our lives what the Spirit of God did is he brought somebody into our lives that was holding this book and this book began to go to work on us and the Bible says that what the Spirit of God began to do is he began to convince us and convict us and reprove us of our sin and His righteousness and the inevitable judgment that is to come because of His righteousness and because of our sin and in bringing, being brought to that place of conviction in brokenness and in contrition and in godly sorrow for sin, we come to Christ denying ourselves, which means we cease trusting ourselves or anything that we and ourselves can do to bring us to God. And because of the recognition of our sinfulness and the inability of self to do anything about it, we come denying ourselves and it means that we cease loving ourselves because we are brought to such a place of desperation that we at that moment deplore ourselves. And in absolute humility... We fall on our face at the foot of His cross and we cry out to God for mercy and we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our righteousness and we get up off of our face taking His cross as we follow Him with our lives. That's salvation, folks. Hello? But listen, 
in, in Laodicea. Speakers stand before congregations and before large groups that gather in coliseums and civic centers and stadiums. We, as individuals, stand before family members and co-workers and neighbors begging and pleading people to receive Christ. And every once in a while, people, quote-unquote, come to Christ. But now listen, when they come, there's no sign of conviction. There's no sorrow for sin. No contrition. No brokenness. But, oh, buddy, they're sincere, aren't they? You know what? They sincerely want the love, joy, peace, happiness, fulfillment that we told them was the result of coming to Christ. But when they're coming to Christ, they're not coming as sinners seeking to flee the wrath that's to come. And you know why they're not coming like that? Because we haven't even told them that there is any wrath to come. All we've told them is the benefits of this thing. You want peace? You want joy? You want happiness? Then pray this prayer. Listen, do you know why the death of Christ on the cross and His burial and His resurrection is called the Gospel? It's called the Gospel because the word Gospel means good news and you know what makes it such good news it's because there's real real bad news y'all we don't ever tell people the bad news all we want to tell them is good news and good news without there being bad news ain't good news it's nice news you go to the doc tomorrow a little checkup the doc says well I've got good news for you you don't have cancer. It was the furthest thing from your mind in the first place. Okay, cool. You know what? You don't go around telling anybody about, you know what? Went to the doc. I ain't got cancer, man. But contrast that with two months ago, you were at the doctor, and the doctor says, you know what? You're absolutely eat up with cancer, and you got two months to live. And now you've gone back after four weeks, after one month. And then you go to the doc. And the doc, doc checks you out and says, you know what, I've got, I've got good news. There ain't a trace of cancer in you. You know what? Woo! you got to be kidding me. And you know what? You're all excited about the, the good news because there was extremely bad news there. And we spend our time just going around telling everybody, hey, you ain't got cancer, you know that? They don't understand the bad news. Folks, listen. It's good news because the incredibly bad news is that if you take your last breath on this planet and you die and stand before the God of this book, you'll be eternally separated from Him in the flames of hell. And if you're going to be probably like most of the people that are alive on this planet right now who are going to be alive when Jesus Christ comes back to his earth at, this, at his second coming, you know what the real bad news is, y'all? 
the real bad news you need to understand is that according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, it says that when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that he's coming, listen, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's bad news. And you see, because lost people in Laodicea don't understand the incredibly bad news, there's no desperation to receive the good news. And so people supposedly come to Christ, but they have no genuine repentance because we haven't told them the whole truth and because we don't they don't even see any need to repent and so people are coming to follow Christ but they're never brought to the cross and unless you come to the cross no matter what you call yourself you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't come without a cross. Here's a guy in, sitting in first class in the airplane. And you know what? They've got those things pretty plush now. You know, you kick back the chair and got a little TV popping up. They're feeding you all the time on those international flights and all that. So he's cruising along, doing just fine, pretty comfortable. Had a nice nap, had a nice little dinner. And all of a sudden, the stewardess comes along and says, Sir, I'm here to help, and anything I can do to help you to make your trip more enjoyable, just let me, go, uh, let, let me know. And in fact, sir, here's a parachute right here, and I want to tell you, this parachute is going to make your trip so much more enjoyable. And uh, so if you want to just slip this thing on, and so, you know, he, he you know, pulls the chair up and straps this thing on, and... He no more gets this thing strapped on before he's finding out this thing is really binding him up. And, you know, it's kind of putting a little crick in his neck as he's trying to lay back in his chair. And he starts looking around and he's finding out that everybody else in first class is laughing their head off at the jerk with the parachute on over there. And he thinks to himself, you know what? This thing ain't doing what she said it was going to do. And so he jerks the thing off and says, forget that. Now contrast that with the stewardess coming up and saying, Sir, excuse me, you look incredibly comfortable, and I know that this is an inconvenience, but the pilot has just informed me that this puppy's going down. Right now we're cruising at 25,000 feet. Your only hope of survival is to put on this parachute. Would you like this parachute, sir? You know what he'll do? He'll put that parachute on, and it really won't matter to him that it binds him up. It really won't matter to him that it's inconvenienced him. And it won't matter to him that the whole plane is laughing their head off because what he's going to be thinking is, you're going to be wishing you had this parachute in just a couple minutes because this pup's going down. And, and you see, what we want to do is we want to tell people how the parachute of Christ 
If you'll just put on Christ, he'll give you love and happiness and joy and contentment. And, and they sign up for this thing and they find out that they have temptation and trial and persecution. And they throw off Christ because they didn't come for that kind of Christ. They came for the kind of Christ that we sold them, that we told them about. It's just, the only problem is, it's not the, cross, the, the Christ of the Bible. And, and it's what we're talking about in the third point of our outline. The, the nullification of the cross. The nullification of the cross. And, and let me ask you to, to turn again to the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. Watch what Paul says in, in verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now watch this. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect or, or nullified. And, and, and don't miss now. Listen, do not miss what Paul's saying here. Are, are you listening? What he's saying is that there's a way to communicate what sounds like the gospel. But the gospel we present is void of the saving power of God. And the reason that it's void of the saving power of God is because of our slick presentation what Paul calls here the wisdom of words. And Paul says, look in verse 17 again, when we employ the wisdom of words in our presentation of the gospel, it's a powerless gospel because the power of God in salvation is the cross of Christ. That's what verse 18 says. Look at it. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And Paul says, when we use wisdom of words, we make the cross of Christ, which is the power of God in salvation, we make the cross of none effect. Its power to save is nullified. I love what Spurgeon said about this verse. Look on your study sheet. Spurgeon said, I've never yet heard that the cross of Christ was made of none effect by great plainness of speech, nor even by ruggedness of language. And isn't that true, y'all? You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be eloquent. In fact, those things work in your favor when it comes to the presentation of this message. But it is the wisdom of words which is said to have this destroying power and recognizing that check this out, all of a sudden Spurgeon busts out and says oh dreadful wisdom of words God grant that we may be delivered from making attempts at it for we ought earnestly to shun anything and everything which can be so mischievous in its influence as to make the cross of Christ of none effect and listen you know why we Laodiceans seek to employ the wisdom of words in our presentation of the gospel? You know why we do this? 
The answer is right there in verse 18. Look at it again. It's because the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? Foolishness. And you know what? We don't like to be looked at as foolish by the world. We don't like to look stupid to the world. The world sees the cross and the preaching of the cross as something simple people talk about. You talk about the cross and, and, and they're going to think that you're not a person of great thought and intellect. They, they'll look at you as somebody who's really just not able to, to advance with the, the ideas in modern thought. And so you know what we do? We try to find a way to let them know how sharp we are even though we're a Christian. And tell me if it ain't true. We want to tell them and want them to know, you know what, I've got a lot on the ball even though I am a Christian. And Spurgeon went on to say, under pretense of winning the cultured intellects of the age, the wisdom of words has gradually landed us in a denial of those first principles for which the martyrs died. And you know what he means by that? In the days when pagan Rome dominated the world, which gave way to when papal Rome dominated the world, listen, those who believed what Jesus did on the cross was the only way that a person could be saved. Those people were hunted, they were imprisoned, they were tortured, they were butchered, and they were murdered. Our, our brothers and sisters, because they were so clueless, you know, they just happened to believe that human philosophy was just a bunch of Christ rejectors professing themselves to be wise who had become a bunch of egotistical fools who were against the cross of Christ. And never in a million years did they even entertain the idea of giving a flip at what that crowd thought. They didn't give a moment's thought about mixing the world's philosophy with the cross of Christ. That group of people despised the world's philosophy. And not only that, our brothers and sisters believed that anything that any church or any religious system added to the finished work of Christ, they saw that as being opposed to Christ. They saw that as being against Christ. And they weren't going to coddle that system. And because they believed that, you know what? They couldn't meet in rooms like we're meeting in this morning. They had to meet in desert places. They had to meet in the catacombs. They had to meet in, in the forest. They had to meet on the sides of hills. They had to meet in caves. And you know why they met? To hear the world's philosophy? No. no nobody ever risked their life to hear human, human philosophy, y'all. You can bank on that. They gathered there to hear preaching. The preaching of the cross. And they weren't there to have somebody stroke them the right way and tell them and, and tickle their ears. You don't risk your life to have your ears tickled. You risk your life because Jesus gave his life on a cross. And you love that cross. 
And you want to hear that cross proclaimed because you understand it's the power of God. And they didn't gather in those places to burn candles. They didn't gather in those places to do religious rituals. They came there to reflect on the glory of the cross. They wanted somebody to preach to them about the cross. And we in Laodicea go, man, I wish that we would just get onto something that had to do with me, with my little stinking life. They gloried in the cross. And quite honestly, folks, the, the reason Laodicean Christians in modern America don't have the spirit of the martyrs is because of the modern crossless gospel that we've embraced. But buddy, here were our brothers and sisters nailed to crosses themselves. And you can go back and read about it. Impaled on stakes like a shish kebab and burned to a stinking crisp. You know why? Because they would not compromise the message of the cross. That was the, the issue. It was the cross. And they counted it a privilege to be able to lay down their lives for Christ. And here we are as Laodiceans. And for fear of ridicule by the world. For fear of looking foolish to the world. Young people, for fear of not being considered cool by the world at school for fear of being cut off from this world that we still embrace and love. What we do is we go to great lengths to make the gospel palatable because the church is always talking about reaching people. Can't be somebody in that church unless you're reaching people. And so we, we labor to find ways to make the gospel palatable and so we minimize the issue of sin. And we go to great lengths to make the gospel politically correct. And so we wouldn't dare use harsh biblical words like death and hell and torment and persecution and damnation and blood. We go to great lengths in Laodicea to make the gospel acceptable the world, to get them to, to pray a prayer with us. You know what we want? We want to bring our guests to the Christmas candlelight service, where the room is all pretty, and everything is nice, and it's, it's warm, and it's family. We just don't want to bring our guests, and we are scared stiffless that we're going to come and Pastor Mark is going to be preaching about Revelation 17.6 about the religious whore who is the religious system of the city that's sitting on seven hills, listen, who is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You see, you know what? We want them to come when it's going to be nice and cozy and it's going to just work just perfectly into their little life. We don't want people to know that the cross of Christ is so powerfully divisive 
that people might want to kill you if you embrace that cross. Do you understand that? We don't want them to know about all of that. We don't want them to know that the blood of 50 million people thought that it was worth laying down your life over and they wouldn't compromise the message for the wisdom of words even though it meant they were going to be brutalized and tortured and murdered for it. But oh buddy, here come we smug, super spiritual, got it all together, know so much, lay out of sins, and we come along. And you know why we employ the wisdom of words in our explanation of ourselves as a Christian? It's because we're afraid of what Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12 calls the persecution for the cross. And I just want to tell you, if you embrace that cross, persecution comes with it. And you know why we're afraid of the persecution for the cross? It, it, it's not any real deep, dark secret. You know why it is, y'all? It's because we never really denied ourselves the first prerequisite for power. And we've never taken up our cross, though we are quite certain that we are, in fact, and indeed, followers of Christ. Though we've never denied ourselves, and though we have no cross. You see, Laodiceans have got this incredible way of seeing things differently than the way Jesus does. And the fact is, we, we don't understand the crucifixion of the cross. And that's the next point on our outline. And, I, and I'm not going to work the point. I do want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 6 for just a second. The crucifixion of the cross, that's letter D. <clears throat> now, now listen, when we talked about the reconciliation of the cross, that was the cross as it relates to salvation. It reconciled us. When we talk about the crucifixion of the cross, we're talking about the cross as it relates to sanctification. Not something that's getting us saved, but because we are saved, bringing us into the full ramifications of what that salvation was all about. So make sure you understand that. The cross has two operations. First, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins, and through that cross purchased our eternal salvation but make sure that you understand and you see that's how everybody in this room got in I know that but you see we've never really understood that the cross does not stop there the second work of the cross provides for our ongoing sanctification listen the daily continuous crucifixion of our flesh. We talked about it last week. Jesus said, take up your cross. How often? Daily. Paul said in Galatians 2.24, I am crucified with Christ. Not I was crucified. I am crucified with Christ. And I'm telling you, now, now, now listen, for those of us in Laodicea, who really have experienced the reconciliation 
of the cross and in humility and, and brokenness for sin. We, we came to Christ and were genuinely saved. For that group of people, which is a whole lot smaller in number than we would probably want to admit. But for the few who really have been reconciled by the cross, there are very few of us, and I do say us, who have ever really experienced the crucifixion of the cross on any kind of consistent basis. You know what I'm talking about here? Listen, very few of us have ever learned to let the cross do its deadly work in our flesh on a daily basis. And the reason so few of us have, folks, is it requires a voluntary death to self. Now you turn in your sheet. I want to make sure that you don't miss what I just said. The reason so few know of the crucifixion of the cross is it requires a voluntary death to self. And you know what most of us want? Listen, what most of us want in this Christian life thing is we really want to be right with God. But we don't want to voluntarily sign up for a cross. What we want is somehow we want God to, to zap us. We want Him to, to obliterate our will somehow, to do what needs to be done to get us so that we no longer desire sin and so that He crucifies our flesh and we just wake up one day and bam, it happened. And it doesn't happen that way. I like the way Tozer said it, talking about taking up your cross. He said, here is clear, intelligent choice. A choice that must be made by the individual with determination and forethought. In the kingdom of God, now listen to this, no one ever stumbled onto a cross. Christ chose the cross by choosing the path that led to it. And it is so with his followers. In the way of obedience, listen, in the way of obedience stands the cross. And we take the cross when we enter that way. The cross is always in the way of righteousness. And to walk that way, folks, you've got to voluntarily pick up the cross. We, we make the willful calculated choice to take up our cross. And I want to ask you, do you experience the crucifixion of the cross? Look at what Paul says here in, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. And we're, I'm going to hit this again next time. But look at verse 14. He says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, watch this. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And I'm just telling you folks in Laodicea, there ain't one in a thousand that has any clue what he's talking about in verse 14. 
world is still so appealing and self is still fighting tenaciously to get its way. But we're going to heaven because we went to the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And we don't realize the cross that saved us is a cross that slays us and raises us to walk in newness of life. And for our consideration to determine whether or not we've really been crucified, one writer suggests this. When you are neglected, unforgiven, or when you are purposely set at naught and you sting and you hurt with the insult of that oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed and your advice is disregarded and your opinions are ridiculed and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, you take it all patiently in loving silence. That is dying to self. And when you patiently and lovingly bear any disgrace, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with folly and extravagance and spiritual insensitivity and endure it as Jesus did, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any money, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or seek after commendation from others, and when you truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. And when you see your brother prosper and have his needs wondrously met, and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy and never question God though your needs are greater and still unmet. That is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and humbly admit inwardly as well as outwardly that he's right and find no resentment or rebellion in your heart, that is dying to self. <clears throat> now, I suggest to you, there ain't one in a thousand people who claim to follow Jesus Christ that are dead. Do you feel like that's an exaggeration? And yet, this is what he's called us to. We got to we got to quit here. You know what? It, it, really, it, it, some of the, some of these issues that Laodiceans deal with, like this, we, we're so embedded under false teaching and false thinking that it, it takes it takes pounding. You, you know what I've been doing for the last two two Sundays? I've been pounding. You know what I've been trying to do? Get the spiritual jackhammer out. 
because as Laodiceans, we're embedded under about 10 feet of concrete. And we need to just have somebody keep pounding truth into us. And, and, and we've been pounding. And, and I, I know what, what some of you are going to think. You're going to think, I don't know if I want a miserable life. This is the fallacy. There is life in that cross. It's where abundant living is found. But because we want abundant living so bad, it, because we're chasing it all over the place, every place but at the foot of the cross, we're miserable. And the last thing we want is the only place we'll get what we really want. So you're going to have to have to hang on because we got to get the pounding so that we get to the place to where we can hear the, the truth that begins to unfold as you look at what the cross is. But, but understand, we're just pounding this thing right now so that we can appreciate it, so we can understand it, so for God's sake, we can start living it. But if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I gotta I gotta tell you, there's a lot of times I try to make this thing really flowery. I've been guilty of employing the wisdom of words. The truth is, you you are more terminal than if you your whole body will eat up with cancer, because spiritually you're eat up with sin, and ain't you don't you ain't got a hope in the world. You're a goner. But God came in to do what was necessary. He shed his blood and died as an unblemished sacrifice to take that sin away so that you could be reconciled with him. And the God of the universe offers you that inner invitation to repent of your sin and come to his cross and follow him. And you can do that today, man. Our pastors are going to be on either side of the front of this, this room, positioning themselves there to, to talk to you so that if God talked to you in the service today, you'd have somewhere where you could go so somebody could maybe explain your situation maybe a, a little more in detail. That's why they're there. We, we urge you to come. But Come. Because the Spirit of God has reproved you of your sin and His righteousness and of the fact there is judgment to come. But man, you can, you can leave today a child of God, reconciled to Him. But for those of us Laodiceans who claim to be reconciled, we got a long way to go, don't we? We need him to teach us desperately. And I know, oh, we want to get through the book of Revelation. 
Jesus ain't really interested in that. He's interested in followers. And, and it's, it's time we let him teach us what it means to follow him. I want to give you a second right now to bow your head and talk to the Lord about what he's talked to you about as a Laodicean. You would think, in light of everything that the Lord said, that this would be a time of, of confession, of sin, of repentance. To be quite honest with you, shame. Shame on us. That we are so connected to the world, we fail to give them the only message that can change their life. And now, Lord, would you please work in the hearts of people that are here today that don't know you. And Lord, either the Spirit of God has done His job to reprove them of sin and righteousness and judgment, or, or that's been refused today. But for all of those that, that you've worked in their hearts, pray that this would be the day that they would come to your cross in repentance of sin and embrace you as their Lord and Savior. And for all of us that know you, oh God, forgive us. For taking the cross to bring us to salvation, but refusing to take that cross to bring us to sanctification. Lord, please help us. Open our eyes. Anoint our eyes with eye salve that we may see. Oh, Lord, before you come for us, we want to become what you're looking for in your bride. Help us to purify ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.